Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is episode three. This is part two of of uh, uh, part. This is part two of a, of an episode on the Kalam cosmological argument. So if you haven't listened to part one, go listen to that part. There, I lay out the steps of the argument. I provide good reasons to believe that the premises are true. Um, and in this episode, I'm going to presuppose that you've already listened to that podcast episode. So if you haven't done that, go do that. Be Otherwise, you will probably be lost. <clears throat> now, to recap, the uh, Kalam cosmological argument is, one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And last time, we saw that there are very good reasons, both scientifically and philosophically, to believe that the universe began to exist. It exploded into being out of nothing uh, for about 14 billion years ago in an event that scientists call the Big Bang. And we also saw that there is good reason to believe that anything that comes into being has a cause for its being. It didn't come into being... Things don't come into being without causes. And after we looked at the evidence for the truth of those two premises, reaching the conclusion that the universe... that the universe has a cause for its existence, we went into a conceptual analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe. And we saw that the... the universe's cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, unimaginably powerful, supernatural, uncaused, and must be a personal being. Again, if you have not listened to the previous episode, you need to go back and listen to that. Now, in this episode, I am going to be looking at objections to the premises of the argument that atheists have posed in the history of philosophy to the Kalam argument. Obviously, if they're to maintain their atheism, they've got to refute the argument somehow. Otherwise, they're forced with this uni- this universe that was created by God. If they're to maintain their worldview... They've got to show that one of the premises is false. And atheist philosophers and laymen and bloggers and and atheists of all sorts uh, who come into contact with this argument have tried to do that. I don't think that those objections are any good. In this podcast episode, we're going to be looking at those objections, and I'm going to show what the problems are with them. And I'm going to be looking at the objections according to which premise of the argument they try to take down. So we'll we'll first look at objections to premise one, after that we'll move on to objections to premise two, and then finally we'll move on to objections to the conceptual analysis. Some atheists have no problem with the, uh, the, the two premises, but they have a problem with saying that the conceptual analysis the conclu- of the conclusion is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, uncaused, supernatural creator. So, let's get started looking at those objections. <clears throat> objections to premise one. Objection 1. Quantum mechanics disproves the first premise. Lots of atheists say that the first premise, that whatever begins to exist has a cause, has been falsified by quantum physics. They say that in physics, subatomic particles, virtual particles they are called, uh, come into being out of the vacuum, uh, the quantum vacuum. And... 
therefore, in physics, you do get something from nothing, namely these, these virtual particles come into being from nothing. And this idea has been popularized by the theoretical physicist, popular speaker, and best-selling author, Lawrence Krauss. He talks about this in his book, A Universe from Nothing. In his book, Krauss argues that the quantum vacuum allows our universe to pop into existence out of nothing. The problem is, is that this is a misrepresentation of science. Theoretical physicist Alexander Vilenkin has corrected his colleague Krauss in an online science journal. Vilenkin makes it clear, quote, A vacuum is ordinarily thought of as empty space. But according to modern particle physics, what is empty is not nothing. The vacuum is a physical object endowed with energy density and pressure. It can be in a number of different states, or vacua. The properties and types of elementary particles differ from one vacuum to another. End quote. So, according to Alexander Vilenkin, who is a theoretical physicist like Krauss, a, the, the quantum vacuum is a physical object... It is endowed with energy density and pressure, and it can be in a number of different states. Does that sound like nothing to you? Remember what we mean by nothing. Nothing is what rocks dream about. It has zero properties. It is Nothingness is a term of universal negation. It is the absence of all being. If something has any properties at all, it is not nothing. It is something. And the quantum vacuum is very much something. It is a sea of roaring, violent energy that has a physical structure and is governed by physical laws. Moreover, I, the, I, would po I would like to point out that the quantum vacuum is a part of our universe. So if the universe came into being, then that means that the quantum vacuum came into being. And if the quantum vacuum came into being then you need to answer the question, where did the quantum vacuum come from? Objection 2. We have no examples of things beginning to exist. One rebuttal to the Kalam Cosmological Argument's first premise that I've seen is that it cannot be confirmed because we don't have any examples of things beginning to exist. Right, you, you heard me right. You don't have to rewind this. I, you heard right. We have no examples of anything beginning to exist. We ha what they, they argue that we only have examples of matter being rearranged into other things. Uh, according to these skeptics, nothing ever begins to exist because the stuff of which something is made is nothing more than just rearranged matter. So, for example, a chair does not begin to exist. Rather, the, the, the stuff, the, the wood that the chair is made out of pre-existed the chair, and what really happened when you, when you got a chair was just the rearrangement of matter. Someone cut down a tree and, and fashioned it into something you could sit on. I think this might be one of the worst objections to the Kalam cosmological argument I ever heard. In fact, William Lane Craig talked about it in a lecture he gave called um, Objection. I think it was called Objections to the Kalam Cosmological Argument So Bad I Couldn't Have Made Them Up. Think, think about it for a second. If nothing ever begins to exist, then that means that you never began to exist. So I have to ask... Where were you the night of the dino uh, where were you the night the dinosaurs were killed by a meteor? Were you lying back in a canopy sipping coconut milk? Now that I think of it, where was I when that happened? I have no recollection of seeing the meteor wipe out the dinosaurs and seeing Barney head for his uh, doomsday bunker. <laughs> Maybe the presupposition behind this question is wrong. Maybe we weren't there at all. Maybe, just maybe, we didn't exist yet. The problem with this objection is that it confuses X with the material stuff that X is made of. 
Even if the material that comprises X has always existed, that doesn't mean that X has always existed. Even if the matter and energy that composes my body has always existed, it doesn't mean that I have always existed. The reality is that we actually have a lot of examples of things coming into being. Uh, trucks, cars, galaxies, planets, peoples, playstations, Nintendos, computers, video games, MP3 players, animal, uh, animals, soda cans, ad infinitum. These things didn't always exist, even if it's true that the matter these things are composed of always existed. The objector is presupposing that everything that begins to exist has a material cause. Now, what do I mean by material cause? By material cause, I mean the stuff which was used to assemble the object in question, the material out of which the object was made. By efficient cause, I mean something or someone brought about the beginning of the object. Material causes are the stuff which is used to assemble an object. And an efficient cause is the thing that did the assembling. Uh, for example, the material causes of this podcast are my Sony recorder, my microphone, uh, the Anchor website on which I host this podcast, um and my vocal cords, which allow me to speak. B but the efficient cause of the podcast is Evan Minton, myself. Um, so th this distinction between material and efficient causation was made famous by the ancient philosopher Aristotle. Now, the objection here is that it, it is, the objector is presupposing that everything that begins to exist has a material cause. However, that presupposition is not relevant to the Kalam argument. I would agree that in our experience, whenever we see something come into being, it has not only an efficient cause, but also a material cause. Therefore, one could say that we have just as much inductive evidence for material causation as we do for efficient causation in general. But this inductive evidence can be overridden, that is to say, we can say something came into being without a material cause, even though it did have an efficient cause. That The evidence that nothing ever begins to exist without a material cause can be overridden if we have powerful evidence that all physical reality did come into being without a material cause a finite time ago. Now, we... We saw in the previous podcast episode that we do, in fact, have powerful scientific evidence as well as philosophical arguments which show that the whole of physical reality, all matter, energy, space, and time, had an absolute beginning. It all started with the Big Bang. The various strands of evidence for the Big Bang, the second law of thermodynamics, the Two philosophical arguments concerning the nature of actual infinites, all of these prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the universe began to exist ex nihilo. So, we it is reasonable to say that something can exist without a material cause, but no, but it is completely unreasonable to say that something could have no cause whatsoever not even an efficient cause. Obviously, anything that begins to exist has to have an efficient cause. Objection 3. Your argument for the first premise commits the fallacy of composition. Speaking, uh, I, the, um, the fallacy of composition is that the you are inferring something about the whole of an object on the basis of a fact of, an, of a particular part. So, for example, one might conclude every single part of an elephant is light in weight. 
So that must mean the entire elephant is light in weight. Well, obviously that doesn't follow. Just because an elephant's ear may not be heavy, that doesn't mean that the entire elephant is not heavy. To say that it is is to commit the fallacy of composition. Or to say that um, some white people are racist, therefore all white people are racist. That's... Well, that that might be that might be hasty generalization rather than the fallacy of composition. Um, or because Evans' shoes are black, therefore his entire outfit is black. That's another example of the fallacy of composition. Uh, and so the object I have heard it objected that the third argument for premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause, commits this fallacy because I said that in experience we we always see when whenever things come into being we see that they have a cause for their beginning but this does not commit that fallacy that the i'm not making the inference that the universe as a whole had a cause on the basis that every individual part of the universe had a cause the third reason is uh, an appeal to inductive reasoning, not reasoning by composition. I'm not saying that every single thing in the universe uh, that we see had a cause, so therefore the, the whole universe must have had a cause. That's not the argument. Rather, whenever we see things coming into being, it had an efficient cause. So we've never seen anything come into being that didn't have a cause. So that gives us good grounds to affirm that if the universe began to exist, it also had an efficient cause. That's inductive reasoning. Scientists use this reasoning all the time. The third, argu the third argument is, again, every, because every example of a thing coming into being that we've ever witnessed has an efficient cause, then if you know something came into existence, be it the universe or whatever, then you have good grounds for affirming it has a, had a cause. We have oceans of examples of things coming into being via a cause and no examples of things coming into being uncaused. Okay, let's look at um, a fourth objection to the first premise. Pre this objection says, Premise 1 is true of everything in the universe just not of the universe itself. The universe is an exception to the law of causality. Now, this objection isn't posed by very many atheists, but there have been a few who have brought this objection up in conversations that I've had with them. These atheists don't deny the law of causality entirely, but they assert that it applies to everything that begins to exist inside the universe. It just doesn't apply to the universe itself. The Big Bang is the, is the exception. Uh, for all we know, the universe could have popped into being out of nothing without a cause, even though that's not the case anywhere else. Now, the problem with this objection is that it commits an informal fallacy known as special pleading. What is special pleading? The special pleading fallacy occurs when one makes up an exception when one's claim is shown to be false. Uh, we've seen... So if, if you see a principle, it holds true in every case that you can think of, but you say, no, no, this, this is an exception. This, everything... This is the exception to the rule. Then you commit the special pleading fallacy. And that is what the atheist is doing in saying, whatever begins to exist has a cause, except the universe. Now, making an exception to an established principle is not always fallacious. If you can provide some rational justification, some good argument or evidence for thinking that the thing in question is an exception to the rule, then you can escape the charge of special pleading. However, the objection... No one who has ever posed this objection to me has ever given any reason to think that the universe is the exception to the causal principle. 
They just throw it out there as a possibility. They just say, maybe, for all we know, the universe is the exception to the rule. And that is special pleading. If they want... If they want this proposal to go forth, they need to present a good argument for that. Okay, now let's look at objections to premise two. The Perhaps the most prominent objection to the premise, the universe began to exist, is what is called the Mother Universe Theory. What is the Mother Universe Theory? The Mother Universe Theory is a model of the universe that was developed in the 1970s um sometimes it's it's basically a version of the multiverse the multiple universe there's many 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 universes out there the theory says that there is a mother vacuum that spawns all sorts of baby universes in its womb the mother universe is static and eternal it's always existed but the baby universes have a beginning um, the smaller universes expand into the mother universe in which they exist. Uh, kind of like how bubbles expand inside of a bathtub as you agitate the bubble bath liquid with high water pressure. Uh, according to some atheist scientists, perhaps the Big Bang was not and the absolute beginning of all things, perhaps it was just the birth of one of these bubble universes, and the cause was the bathtub universe rather than God. So therefore, although it is true that the universe began to exist, in the sense that it, our universe, the one that we inhabit, began to exist, if, you, if what you mean by universe is all physical reality, all space, time, matter, and energy everywhere, then they would say that, that premise is not true because the mother universe has always existed. And therefore, the cause is the mother universe. Now this, this model is probably the strongest objection against the Kalam cosmological argument. However, it has serious problems. You see, at any point in the quantum vacuum, there is a non-zero probability that a universe would form at that point by a quantum fluctuation. But given infinite past time, remember this mother universe is said to be past eternal. It's always existed. The mother universe never began to exist. So give it's so it has had, it's been it's been it's been making universes f from eternity past but gi so given infinite past time and given that there's a non-zero probability that a universe would form at any point in the mother universe universes will have come into being in all places in the quantum vacuum because given any non-zero probability and enough time eventually that probability will be actualized in that case, by now, all of these universes will have gotten so big and so numerous that it would fill the entire vacuum. All of these universes, which have been being spawned by the Mother from eternity past, will have been expanding from eternity past. The, and the Mother's been producing universes from eternity past, they would have gotten so big and so numerous that they would collide with one another, join together, and, fo and form a massive universe that gives off the appearance of an infinitely old, infinitely large universe. Which contradicts the powerful scientific evidence that tells us we live in a universe of finite size and age. So... That's a problem. Now, of course, the skeptic can escape this by saying, okay, so the mother universe is not static. Perhaps the mother universe is expanding as well. That would accommodate room for the continuously spawning baby universes which expand. So there's always more room for these... But it's like the bathtub gets bigger and bigger and bigger, so it can always accommodate more and more bubbles. However, if you take that step, then the 
Mother Universe falls under the bored guth Belenkin theorem, and that means the universe, uh, the Mother Universe had a beginning. Now, you may be wondering at this point, what is the bored guth Belenkin theorem? The bored guth Belenkin theorem is a theorem published by Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Belenkin. It says that any universe which has been constantly expanding in the past cannot be infinitely old, but must have had a beginning at some point. The Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem applies that even a mother universe producing many, many baby universes must have had a, a beginning to its existence. So, you've only kicked the problem upstairs. If the mother universe is expanding, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older, then rewind the clock. Just like, just like I said with our universe in the previous episode, you'll see the Mother Universe get smaller and smaller and smaller as you go farther and farther back in time until it reaches a point of infinite density. Alexander Vilenkin writes on page 176 of his book, Many Worlds in One, it is said... Okay, I'm, I'm quoting him here. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. Aside from the issues I've already talked about, the Mother Universe falls under the same issues regarding the absurdity of actual infinites. A physicist, John M. Kinson, points this out very well in his book, God and the Multiverse. He writes, quote, Premise 1. If atheism is true, the universe must have always existed. Premise 2. The Big Bang shows that the universe did not always exist. Premise 3. Therefore, atheism is false. Premise 4. To avoid this conclusion, that atheism is false and God exists, many atheists prefer to conjure that our universe, to conjecture that our universe was birthed by a mother universe. Premise 5. So what created the mother universe? One atheist conjectures that the mother universe always existed. Premise 6. However, this means that the mother universe must have crossed an infinite number of moments of time to get to the instant in which it gave birth to our universe. Premise 7. It, however, it is impossible to cross an infinity of time moments by crossing or counting through them one by one sequentially. No matter how long you count, you can never cross infinity. Premise 8. Therefore, the the uh, the mother the grandmother universe cannot be infinitely old. Premise 9. Therefore, the grandmother universe was created a finite time ago. P10. This reasoning shows that the grandmother universe did not always exist. P11. Therefore, the superset universe, defined as including the grandmother universe, the mother universe, and our universe, did not always exist. Premise 12, therefore atheism is false, similar to premise 3 above. Conclusion 1, therefore atheism is false. Conclusion 2, therefore there is a God who created the universe, or the mother universe, or the grandmother universe. End quote. Kinson points out a very, a very good point here. Given the problems that I mentioned with the mother universe, that if it has existed from eternity past, then... All of the bubbles spawning from eternity past would have cobbled together and formed an infinitely large, infinitely old universe, which is untenable, because that's not what the, the evidence shows. The evidence shows that we live in a universe of finite size and age. And th but then, if the skeptic wants to say the mother universe is expanding, then backwards extrapolation the, and the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem shows that the Mother Universe had to have a beginning at some point. The skeptic can say, well, oh, well, maybe the Mother Universe itself is a baby of a grandmother universe. Well, then you just run into the same problems. The grandmother universe had to have a beginning. What about a great-grandmother universe? You, and not only, not only do you have these problems, but you have the problem of 
traversing an actual infinite of moments, as Kinson points out. So if the mother universe, if you have a mother universe existing from eternity past, the moment before the moment it created our universe, there had to be a moment in the the wider mother universe that preceded it. And then and that had to have a moment that preceded that, and that had to have a moment that preceded that, and so on back into infinity. You could never get to the moment in time in which our big bang occurred because you the mother universe would there would always have to be an an actually infinite number of events in the mother universe that would have to traverse first. So this bigger universe this mother universe theory can't be the escape hatch from god that the atheist wants to be. It doesn't get rid of god. All it does is just kick him farther and farther upstairs. If you want to say Grandmother universe, great grandmother universe, great great grandmother universe, great 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 grandmother mother universe. You can't keep doing that in past infinity. There has to be an absolute beginning somewhere. So I'm willing to go back as far as you'd like, Mister Atheist. But you there, you can't. Uh, eventually, you go far back enough in time, you're going to run into God. Objection 2, the appeal to the first law of thermodynamics. This is the second objection to premise 2. Some atheists have said that the second premise cannot be true because of the first law of thermodynamics. What is the first law of thermodynamics? The first law of thermodynamics says that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So, if matter cannot be created nor destroyed, and the Kalam argument entails... The doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, the universe came into being out of nothing, matter was created, and so was energy, then then it follows the argument is fallacious. There are three problems with this rebuttal. Number one... The evidence suggests that the universe did have a beginning. You can't just ignore all of the cosmological and philosophical evidence that the universe had a beginning by pointing to the first law of thermodynamics. The Big Bang does not go away. The evidence from the expansion of the of the universe, verified by the uh, empirical evidence of the red shifts discovered by Edwin Hubble and the theoretical work of Einstein, Friedman, and Lamatra, the cosmic microwave background radiation discovered by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, the, um, the fact that stars have not are not the, the fact that only a big bang beginning can account for the 24% ratio of helium that exists the fact that the universe is continuously running down running out of usable energy and yet we still have usable energy left which points to a beginning all the, the atheist can't get ignore all of these various pieces of evidence just by simply pointing to the first law of thermodynamics. He's got to take all of the evidence into account. Secondly, the laws of physics don't apply if there are no laws of physics. Think about it for a second. What if nothing at all existed? No matter, no energy, no space, no time, nothing. What would the law would the laws of physics apply? Well, the laws of physics are something, not nothing. So in the state of nothingness we are imagining, the laws of physics would not apply. And why wouldn't they apply? They wouldn't apply because they wouldn't exist. And, as already stated, we we do have good scientific and philosophical arguments that this state of nothingness we are imagining actually existed at some point. The laws of thermodynamics came into being along with the universe. They weren't sitting someplace waiting for matter to be created so they could rule it. God created ex nihilo. Because that means from nothing, that eliminates the physical laws, which are all something. Thirdly, the first law of thermodynamics applies to nature, not God. What I mean by that is nothing can be created or destroyed by nature. Matter, cannot, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed 
by natural causes. However, God is omnipotent. He can do anything logically possible. And there is nothing logically impossible about bringing something into being without any pre-existing materials. So, what I'm saying here is that the first law of thermodynamics applies post-creation, not pre-creation. Okay, let's look at one final objection to the second premise of the argument, that the universe began to exist. This is... This objection says, Your argument for the finitude of the past is fallacious, because in an infinite past there is no event infinitely distant from the present. Now, what this, what this objection... Okay, f first of all, let me, let me just point this out. Even if this objection succeeded, it wouldn't show that the second premise of the Kalam argument is false. At best, it would show that one of the arguments for the second premise being true is false. Namely, the argument that the universe had to have had a beginning because you cannot traverse an actually infinite number of past events. But you'd still have the Big Bang Theory, the second law of thermodynamics, and you'd have one argument that actual infinites cannot exist that don't, requ that don't require counting infinites. So at at best, this would just show that one of the arguments to confirm the second premise is not good, but it wouldn't show that the second premise itself is not true. To make that conclusion would be to commit what is what is called the fallacy fallacy. But is the you cannot but is the cannot traverse an actual infinite argument bad? Well, no. The objector is arguing that at any point within the infinite past, every single temporal moment is only a finite distance from any other point in time. So you could conceivably get from one point to another. Uh, think about counting to infinity. Uh, um, any, any number is only a finite distance away from any other number. So, 9 trillion, although it's a good ways away from the number 7, it's still only a finite distance. Right? So, what's the problem? Why, why, can't, you, why can't you have an infinite number of past events? This objection commits the fallacy of composition. Because it's saying that just because you can cross any between one point in the infinite series to another point in the infinite series, that therefore the entire infinite series can be traversed. Well, obviously you can you can get from one hundred years ago to today. But that doesn't mean that you can get from infinity past, assuming the universe has always existed, to today. Just because, just because you can get to the present from a, a finite past point doesn't mean that you can get to the present moment from an infinitely distant past point. Okay, now let's look at objections to the conceptual analysis. First objection, if God made the universe, who made God? This is a question that will not die. You all, Whenever Christians make an argument for God's existence from creation, they all, you'll always get, there's always going to be that person that says, Oh yeah, well if God created the universe, then who created God? And you can give a you can give a quick answer or you can give a more sophisticated answer. The quick answer is no one created God. God has always existed from eternity past. He's never not existed. That's the that's the simple, short, and sweet answer. Um, but in the in the context of the Kalam cosmological argument, some might accuse you of special pleading. But they do that on the basis of a of. Um, a misunderstanding 
of the argument. They'll say, oh, well, you, if everything has to begin to, if everything that exists has a cause, then what is God's cause? You can't just say that God is the exception to the rule that everything that exists has a cause. That's a clear misunderstanding of the argument. The argument isn't that if it exists, it has a cause. The argument is if it began to exist, it had a cause. The universe began to exist, so the universe has a cause. God didn't God did not begin to exist, therefore God did not have a cause. So no, we are not making an ex- an unwarranted exception to the first premise of the argument. Now, why does God why is God past eternal? Why God why can't God have a beginning? Well, one reason is uh, is what I said in the previous podcast episode, the attribute of timelessness entails that the cause of the universe is beginningless. Unless there is time, you can't have before and after relationships. If you have, to have a beginning to your existence means that there was a before and after relationship going on. There was a time before you existed, and then there was a time after you came into existence. But in a state of timelessness, you can't have a time before God existed and a time after God came into existence. Since there is no time, there cannot be this this transition in God from non-existence to existence. So if God exists and created the universe, he would have to be uncaused, beginningless. He, he can't there there cannot be this transition in a state of timelessness. And we know that the cause of the universe is timeless because, as I said in the previous episode, time had a beginning at the Big Bang. So, But a second reason is the infinite regress problem. Uh, if you require that God have a cause, then, I mean, eventually you you start asking questions like, who created the one 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 who created God? The buck has to stop somewhere. You can't have an infinite regress of of creators begetting creators. So it's more reasonable to affirm an an uncreated creator than one that has to have a creator himself. So those are the two reasons for why God must be uncaused, beginningless. Okay, another objection to the conceptual analysis. This one comes from the late Stephen Hawking, and I'm reading a quote by him. Quote, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. End quote. Stephen Hawking's response is fallacious for two reasons. Number one, gravity is not nothing. It's a law of physics. The law of physics is something, not nothing. Secondly, gravity is a part of the universe. So to say that gravity, because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will bring itself from nothing, that makes no sense because gravity is a part of the universe. So if the universe came into being and gravity is a part of the universe, then gravity had a beginning and therefore a cause. So to say that because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will bring itself into being from nothing, is it's like saying... Because there is such a thing as the belly button, Evan Minton will inevitably bring himself into being from nothing. Obviously, we can all recognize that a statement like that is utterly absurd. But that is a parallel statement to what Hawking is making. Now, why is the belly button statement absurd? Because the belly button is a part of me. If it's a part of me, and I came into being then the belly button had to come into being too, and therefore it cannot be the explanation for why I exist. Same is true for gravity. Um, it, it just it astonishes me that someone as brilliant as Stephen Hawking, and, and I do respect Stephen Hawking. He's, um, he's a, he was a, a brilliant uh, theoretical physicist, astrophysicist, um, and he, he made some really good contributions to science, but... 
he is a he was a he was a terrible philosopher and to think that he could make such a a simple logical error like this is just i i can't i can't even it's just so surprising uh, it reminds me of what John Lennox, professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, said. He's, he wrote, Nonsense is, remains nonsense, even when spoken by world-famous scientists. Okay, now I'm going to look at one more objection to the conceptual analysis. Even though there are more, I, I don't have time to go through them. And this argument is, I'm, I'm including this, because you will, if you are a Christian and you are listening to this and you are going to use this information, you're going to use this argument, you will run into this objection. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You will. And this objection is, this is a God of the gaps argument. I mean, if I had a dollar for every single time... The Kalam, I used the Kalam cosmological argument, and someone accused it of being a... If I had a dollar for every time that an atheist uses, I, I would be a very, very wealthy man. Now, what is a God of the gaps argument? A God of the gaps argument is when you observe a phenomenon you don't know how to explain, and so you appeal to divine activity to fill in the gap in your knowledge. A God of the Gaps argument is an argument from ignorance. This objection fails because from beginning to end, the uh, argument is on the basis of what we do know, not on the basis of what we don't know. I gave positive reasons for thinking the first premise is true. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Nothingness is a term of universal negation. It is the absence of all being. As Aristotle put it, it's what rocks dream about because it has no... because it is... It is the absence of all being. It isn't anything. It therefore has no causal powers. It has no causal properties. Because it has no pro causal properties, it cannot bring anything into being. Moreover, we have an ocean of, of examples of things beginning to exist via a cause, and no examples of things beginning to exist without a cause. And as far as the second premise is, all of that was based on what we do know. Positive evidence, positive scientific evidence for the Big Bang Theory, the, um, the, the expansion of the universe, my cosmic microwave background radiation, the ratio of uh, helium to other elements, the second law of thermodynamics, all the philosophical arguments against an actual infinite, all based on what we do know. Now, the conceptual analysis is also based on what we do know. I didn't make the argument that there is no plausible natural explanation for the origin of the universe, so therefore it must be the hand of God. God did it. I gave positive—in fact, I didn't—I say God, but really I only say that as shorthand for the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, powerful, supernatural, personal creator of the universe— uh, the cause I gave positive reasons for thinking that the the cause of the universe, the cause of all physical reality, has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, etc. I will briefly go over those again. It must be spaceless because space began to exist. the The cause of space cannot be in space. If there was no space prior to the origin of the uh, prior to the origin of the universe then the cause of space cannot be in space any more than any more than a um a builder of the house can be inside of the house it must be timeless because time began to exist at the big bang the cause of time cannot be in time any more than the builder of a house can be inside of a house it must be immaterial because it is spaceless matter has mass takes up space has material dimensions and the cause, um, because the cause is not in space, it therefore cannot be material. It must be unimaginably powerful because it was able to create the universe with no from no prior existing materials. It must be uncaused because it was timeless, no before and after relationships. 
It must be personal because one reason is its immateriality. Out of the things that philosophers recognize as, as being immaterial, they're either abstract objects or unembodied minds. Since abstract objects are causally impotent, it must be an unembodied mind. These are all positive reasons for why the universe's cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and powerful. To avoid the conclusion, you, uh, you have to show that one of the premises is false. Either whatever begins to exist has a cause, or the universe began to exist. Now, I'm running on 49 minutes here. Again, I tried to, I tried to go through these as fast as I could. Um, I wanted to show, to kind of get into the, if you want to call it, the conceptual analysis of the conceptual analysis, to show that uh, the creator here is not just some generic god, but that this argument rules out the vast majority of possible religions from being true, and the only... The only religions consistent with this argument's conclusion are Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Deism. So if you're picking a religion, uh, if you're picking out a religion on the basis of the Kalam cosmological argument, you have a one in four chance of getting it right. Of course, I think there are other arguments that get you directly to a uniquely Christian concept of God, like the moral argument, the, onto the ontological argument, and especially the, the argument for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. The, all of these establish Christian theism, but I didn't have time to get through all of that. So, anyway, I, I hope you can see that the objections to the Kalam cosmological argument are not good. This is a sound argument. Both premises are true, and so is the conclusion. The universe began to exist and was created by a being that looks like God. I mean, it matches the, what the Bible says about the creator of the universe. Now, going on 51 minutes, before I end, I want to just say that at the time that you are listening to this recording, it will be Saturday, January 19th. And so this evening, the evening that you're listening to this, unless, of course, you listen to the podcast much, much later, uh, I am going to be in a debate with an atheist named Chris Hansen of of the website Biblical Atheists. And we are going to be debating the topic of the moral argument, which, uh, by the way, I'm going to have a future podcast episode on. And the it's going to be on Modern Day Debate's YouTube channel. You can follow Modern Day Debate at Modern, on Twitter, at Modern Day Debate. And you can watch the debate live streaming from his YouTube channel, and also you can watch it live streaming from Cerebral Faith. I'm going to post it up on the Cerebral Faith website, www.cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. So if you're one of those first listeners, those Saturday morning listeners, go be sure to, to go watch that debate. Um, of course, all of the live stream YouTube Debates are always available later, so if you can't make it or if you're listening to this podcast long after it's published, um, you can still probably go find it. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about the fine-tuning argument. The argument from fine-tuning. Thank you for listening. Uh, come back next week. God bless you.